I'm Karen Bright of the Centre for Law at the Open University, and this programme is about global access to medicines. The principle is simple. That is, in terms of human rights, we all have the right to health, and we should all have the same access to medicines. However, the principle might be simple, but the issues operating against this are highly complex. Hi, my name is Vanessa, and I live in South East London, and I'm 44 years old. I was diagnosed with breast cancer in June 2008, and I was 42 years old then. One issue is around the relative cost of medicines and the impact this has on lives. Let's take two women in two very different parts of the world with stories to tell about being ill and getting treatment. After chemotherapy, I had surgery followed by 15 treatments of radiotherapy, followed by the treatment of a drug called Herceptin. The Herceptin treatment, which runs over a year, which is 18 treatments over a year, costs the NHS £26,000, and each treatment of chemotherapy roughly costs about £700-£800. Meanwhile, in rural Ethiopia, a 19-year-old woman waits in the health centre. My name is Lamlam Gassasa. I live in Mojo Town. I work for a strawberry packing plant called Inlatot. When I felt headache, they told me now that it is typhoid and typhus, and he prescribed three types of medicine. Then I brought the three medicines for Sertibr. So while Vanessa was able to obtain her treatment for free using the National Health Service in Britain, Lemlem Gesseze had to buy the medicine she needed to treat typhoid and typhus. And as she earns just over £17 a month, the medicines cost, at £1.40, more than two days' pay. We know from the poor people that we work with that most of the income is not used where they want it to use, like buying food or making their business work or expanding their business, but it's actually used on buying medicines. That's where our contribution can be, by raising awareness and saying, hey, you know, this global system that is designed in London or Washington and Geneva actually doesn't work for these poor villages. This is Dr Mokka Kamalyani, Senior Health and HIV Policy Advisor for Oxfam. She thinks a key problem is the current patent system. Medicine is different from any other goods. It's not like cars or washing machines or films. The price of medicine is very, very critical for millions and millions of people all over the world. So patents tend to create monopoly, and monopoly tend to create higher prices, making medicine unavailable or unaffordable for people, and that can't be right. On the other hand, many would say that the current patent system is the only one that can deliver medicines effectively. Here's John Pender, Director of Government Affairs, Global Access Issues and Intellectual Property at GlaxoSmithKline. Well, I agree. Medicines aren't like cars and washing machines and other consumer products. They literally are a matter of life and death for some people. That's why it's so important to continue to invest in research and development for new medicines and vaccines and cures. The only model that's been really proven to work on a large scale has been the intellectual property-based R&D model. It takes on average 10 to 12 years, costs between 500 million and a billion pounds, including the cost of failure, to develop a new medicine, and very few medicines are ever successful. 
So it's only the period of exclusivity that a patent provides that enables us to continue to generate the funds for ongoing R&D for medicines for the future. But a highly undesirable outcome of the current patent system is that pharmaceutical companies overwhelmingly make medicines for diseases with large markets, typically those of richer countries. They are much less likely to make medicines for diseases with small markets. These are the so-called neglected diseases of tropical areas, such as Lem Lem Gesese's part of Africa. There is demand, but many could not afford to buy the medicines. So, while it's true that states have the primary duty to deliver the human right to health and widen access to medicines, companies that own patents do have a role to play too. They've got something incredibly valuable. It enables them to make a profit, but they can't just conceive of these patents as someone once described them as sort of crown jewels. They're not crown jewels at all in the sense of something they can hang on to and preserve. They have to use this limited monopoly they have. There is a human rights responsibility on pharmaceutical companies to ensure that they take certain reasonable measures to enhance access Professor Paul Hunt of the Law School at Essex University. He served for six years as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the right to the highest attainable standard of health. But these issues are not simple. They're complicated. For instance, what about key medicines that are no longer protected by patents? John Pender of GlaxoSmithKline. The WHO has a list of 325 essential medicines that it says any basic national formulary should have to provide basic level of health care. And of those 325 medicines, all but about six or seven have no intellectual property associated with them at all, no patents, no copyrights, no trademarks. And yet the WHO says that a third of the world's population has no reliable access to those medicines. And in, parts, in Africa and parts of Asia, that grows to two-thirds. So clearly the issues around just poverty-driven, lack of healthcare infrastructure, lack of healthcare workers, etc., and nothing to do with intellectual property. So this suggests there are many other obstacles to getting medicines to women such as Lem Lem Gesese. I accept that there are other obstacles, not all of which can be addressed by pharmaceutical companies. I mean, for instance, in many countries in the world, there are collapsing health systems. There aren't distribution channels. One obstacle in some countries is corruption. There is the allegation that diversion or leakage is a problem. Some countries receive drugs at low prices and then, lo and behold, those drugs then leak back to countries which are in a different social economic group and have much higher prices. Yet there is plenty of evidence that medicines are only targeted at rich countries or at the urban elites in poor countries, that prices are set too high and there is not enough transparency about those prices and about the costs of developing the medicines. Some people's view is that it's the mechanism for rewarding companies that's wrong and this needs radical rethinking. Pharmaceutical companies are often vilified these days. People say that they are evil, they're thinking only about profits. I don't really share that view. I think that much of the fault lies with us, with the politicians and our citizens, namely that we incentivize pharmaceutical companies in such a way that they cannot make profit on serving the needs of poor populations. The Health Impact Fund would change that and I think would allow pharmaceutical companies to do well by doing good. One of several alternative mechanisms 
The Health Impact Fund is the brainchild of Thomas Pogge, Leitner Professor of Philosophy and International Affairs at Yale University, and Aidan Hollis, Associate Professor of Economics at Calgary University. The Health Impact Fund would keep patents, but remove their monopoly. So how would the fund work in practice? Suppose that a company has a vaccine that shows promise for malaria. Then what normally would happen is the company would mark that product up, would say we can produce it, let's say, for 20 cents a dose, but we are selling it for $2 a dose and we have to mark it up like this in order to recover our research and development expenses. With the Health Impact Fund, the company would market the product at 20 cents at cost and it would be rewarded on the basis of the health impact of the vaccination campaign. So we would use existing rates of prevalence in the various countries of malaria as our baseline and we would observe how the introduction of this vaccination program would bring that rate of prevalence down and we would then pay the company on the basis of reduced mortality and morbidity attributable to their vaccination campaign. And why should pharmaceutical companies be attracted by this? For example, because they have a product that is essentially indicated for poor populations and therefore could not make much money on a marker patent tracks. Those are the diseases, so-called neglected diseases, that the patent system has left out, It's like malaria, tuberculosis, schistosomiasis, dengue fever, Burruli ulcer, and so on. It is an interesting idea, but it's actually full of holes in the sense that it still keeps the patent system totally intact. It also relies totally on drug companies' will to enter into this, but doesn't give them the incentives. I think being paid on results as a concept, is absolutely fine. But how do you measure the impact that a new intervention has had when it's being added to lots of other different interventions is, I think, the real challenge. I was thinking around the example of the malaria vaccine where bed nets are being widely distributed, there's indoor residual spraying, you've got vector control initiatives. So if you add a malaria vaccine to that, how do you differentiate the impact that that has had over all of those existing interventions? Many campaign instead to make use of existing mechanisms, like voluntary licensing, that is, permission to make a similar medicine. For pharmaceutical companies to give more voluntary licenses to the so-called generic companies. Generic companies are companies that produce equivalent or copies of new drugs. So the good generic companies will produce a drug, same quality, it's the same drug basically, but they save on two things. They save on the cost of the initial research because the drug is already there, so they don't do that bit. But also they have their own ways of saving in production. And a lot of these companies are in India, in Thailand and Brazil. So for example, the price of antiretrovirals where you need three medicines to be taken at the same time for treating HIV, it used to be $10,000 per patient per year. When Indian generics start making the medicines and came to the market, it was like a, a price war actually to get the price down. And eventually now you can have this cocktail drugs for less than $100 per person per year. So a huge difference. Patent pools are another method to widen access to medicines. They are seen as a potentially cheaper and faster way of developing medicines for neglected diseases. They are also another means for generic companies to license patents. 
It's like a one-stop shop. So remember that every medicine doesn't have just one patent. It can have many, many into hundreds even. So a patent pool is a way where all the companies put their patent in this pool, as it were, and then generic companies that want to produce these cocktails can go to this pool and get the patent without having to go around every company, every research institution, and produce the medicines and sell it at very cheap price. And meantime, they will pay a royalty to the companies that have the patent. So it's a win-win situation. What change we've seen over the last 10 years, and certainly within GSK accelerated in the last couple of years, is a willingness to pursue different types of business models and to recognise that a one-size-fits-all approach is no longer appropriate. So that's why, in particular for R&D, we're pursuing an open innovation strategy. We've put 800 of our patents and patent applications into a new pool for open innovation. We've also put our knowledge and know-how into that pool because that's what researchers said they really needed to have access to. They needed to be able to ask us, have you tried this? What happened when you did? How did you get over this stability problem? This isn't designed to be a commercial opportunity for GSK at all. So any products that are developed out of this pool based on our intellectual property for the least developed countries will be on a royalty-free basis. But if there's no gain at all for the pharmaceutical company, surely it's not sustainable. Well, you're absolutely right to say that it doesn't overcome the fundamental issues of lack of financing and lack of incentives for R&D. So absolutely, this isn't the only answer. But pharmaceutical companies need to take more steps than they presently take to enhance access. They've got to engage in public-private partnerships, voluntary commercial licences. There might be a role for compulsory licences in some cases. Donation programmes will have a role too. Critically differential pricing between countries and within countries has to be undertaken. There are many things that pharmaceutical companies can do more robustly and more widely than they're doing at the moment. So what can leverage pharmaceutical companies to do better as regards widening access to medicines? The United Nations? Professor Paul Hunt. In 2008, I tabled my human rights guidelines for pharmaceutical companies in relation to access to medicines. I tabled them with the UN General Assembly. And I know that the pharmaceutical companies did not like the length of the guidelines. There are 47 guidelines. We had to be specific. For example, part of what the guidelines talk about is greater transparency in relation to lobbying or advocacy or promotional activities of pharmaceutical companies. Who are they giving money to? on what conditions, for how long, and so forth. I think that's one area where the pharmaceutical companies were somewhat unhappy. I think most companies, a lot of the policies that they pursue are very much aligned with the guidelines that the special rapporteur developed. However, there is a fundamental issue that underpins those guidelines, and that is that there is some sort of legal obligation on the industry to undertake access to medicines issues. That is something that we don't accept. By contrast, what has seemed to have generated a positive response from the world's top 20 pharmaceutical companies is the Access to Medicines Index. It's an informal and independent audit carried out by the Access to Medicines Foundation. I think there has been a real sense of companies wanting to be seen to be doing better. And I think what is very satisfying from the coverage that the index has got is that it has focused on accentuating the positive. It's focused on those companies that have done better, hasn't just concentrated on the laggards. And I think that's very, very helpful. 
it may look like we're stuck trying to soften the harsh effects of the patent system to make access fairer. But in some countries, notably Cuba, it is the state and not the pharmaceutical companies that decide which diseases to invest in, and it is the state that owns the patents in any medicines developed. Andres Cardenas, an innovation economist at the University in Bremen, grew up in Cuba. From the beginning, the Cuban health ideology has been based on the idea that health is a right for all and a responsibility for the states. And in that sense, it is a responsibility for the state to guarantee funding for neglected diseases. For example, two vaccines that were developed for the National Center of Scientific Investigations in Cuba. One was vaccines against cholera, and the other one was vaccines against pertussis. They were conceived to feel a necessity in other developing countries. Cuba has been really successful by eliminating neglected diseases which are common in the rest of the developing world. State direction and ownership works for Cuba, but other states will pursue those solutions most suitable for them. So what of the future? The issues introduced in this program show the complexity around inequality of access to medicines. Improvements to access can be made using a variety of mechanisms and business models. Replacement of the current patent system is highly unlikely, but Dr. Mogul Kamalyani points a way forward. We don't want pharmaceutical companies to suddenly turn to be a charity, but what we want them to do is to take access to medicine as part of their business strategy. So starting from the beginning, you're going to make a drug. How is that drug going to be useful to people in developing countries? And then from there, you move into, well, okay, how can I make it useful? How can I market it in a useful way? What do I do to make the price suitable for these countries? And to make it part of their business. At the moment, even with the companies that are doing better than others, it's still at the margin. It's an afterthought. And that's why the solution for it is afterthought solutions. Our guiding principle must, of course, continue to be the advancement of the right to the highest attainable standard of health and the reduction in the disparity of access to medicines and treatment, as described by Vanessa and Lem Lem Gesize. If you have found the issues explored in this programme interesting, you may like to find out about a master's module at the Open University called Business, Human Rights Law and Corporate Social Responsibility, code WU822. The Open University. Mind the Medicine Gap was written and presented by Dr. Karen Bright, Senior Lecturer in Law. For more information, go to the Open University Business School at www.open.ac.uk forward slash OUBS. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.